Hello and welcome back to The Restroom, the podcast about living well with chronic illness. I'm your host, Natasha Lipman. Did you catch my last episode where I talked about navigating work with chronic illness? During the pandemic, obviously working from home became a lot more normalised, but even in that case, somebody might think I'm able to work in some capacity, but all of the opportunities I'm looking at are either too many hours or the policies aren't going to fit around my health needs or the organisation isn't actively promoting that they support disabled talent. So even just finding those opportunities to apply for in the first place is a big barrier. That was good friend of the pod, Pippa Stacey, talking about some of the barriers disabled and chronically ill people face when it comes to accessing flexible, meaningful employment. If you missed that episode, I'd highly recommend going back and giving it a listen. We discuss everything from those barriers we just heard, why employers seem so unwilling to provide accessible work opportunities, plus loads of helpful tips on how to advocate for yourself in the workplace. This week, we're continuing with the theme of work, but this time from the perspective of an employer. My guest is Faye Savory, Chief Sender of Hugs, aka Managing Director at Bear Hugs, a social enterprise which offers hug-in-a-box gift hampers, which people can order online. Faye lives with chronic illness herself, and through her business she has taken amazing steps to give opportunities to disabled and chronically ill people who want to work but haven't been able to find flexible opportunities they can manage alongside their conditions. As you'll hear, it was Faye's own experiences that led her to set up Bear Hugs. I started Bear Hugs about seven years ago now, um, and Bear Hugs is a social enterprise which offers hug-in-a-box gift hampers, which people can order online and send through the post. But we also offer accessible jobs for people who have got energy-limiting conditions, and we offer a hug nomination scheme where for every 50 gifts that we sell, we offer one up to somebody who is affected by a long-term health condition or disability. And uh, we also now have a gift shop and a co-working space as well here in Sheffield, where we're based. So that is basically what I spend a lot of my time doing. But you can also find me if I've got any energy left at all, reading a book or cuddled up with my Cairn Terrier dog, Teddy. And what led you to setting up Bear Hugs in the first place? In my early 20s, I, well, I used to be a speech and language therapist. um, And when I just started a new job up on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland, but I started to notice weird things happening with my body. And they just kept getting progressively weirder until the point where it was quite debilitating. And I had to resign from my job. I was unemployed, very unwell. And for a long time, work was the furthest thing from my mind. But I was very fortunate in that I gradually started to see improvements here and there where I had pockets of time where I felt like I could do something and I really wanted to work. But when I was looking, jobs didn't exist that fitted what I needed to be able to do that. So I thought, okay, what can I do from home myself? And so I thought about starting a business that I could work on around my health. When I was thinking about that, I just kept coming back to thinking about a care package that I'd received from my friend, Sophia. Um, And she was exceptionally kind. And she sent me this beautiful care package. It meant so much to me. And I thought, ah, I wonder if there's something in that. I wonder if I could do something where I could help other people do what Sophia did for me. And that's where the idea came from. And I just gradually started to put together my own care packages that I listed for sale on Etsy. When they sold, I reinvested the money, 
made some more and I just kept doing that and it grew from there. I think the experience of being chronically ill or having a long-term condition and wanting to find ways to work because you might be able to work a few hours a week or a few days a week or a few hours a day or whatever that looks like is quite common in the community but then just knowing how to find those roles or whether those roles exist at all and especially seven years ago for you 10 years ago for me that was a lot harder than it is today there was a lot less understanding than there there has been today especially since the pandemic I think you have a really interesting experience because you completely just decided to go and try and build something for yourself and so there's there's two reasons that I wanted to talk to you today because there's the the entrepreneurship side of it and what does it take to build a business with chronic illness but then also you're doing a lot of things for people with chronic illness through your business so I'd love to start by talking about the process of becoming an entrepreneur and how you were able to build your company from an Etsy business into what it is today but also how you were able to balance that with a chronic illness because I don't have a business business I suppose I have a creative business online and there's pros and cons to working for yourself right like there's there's a lot of kind of things to balance oh gosh it's been really hard it's been a case of trial and error at every single stage I think I think I I felt like there wasn't really a blueprint to follow of there's all kinds of advice around starting a business there's not a huge amount of advice around starting a business with a chronic illness so I think for me it was a lot of trial and error it was try something see if it in the same way in my personal life try something see how my body got on scale it back try again maybe smaller and do it that way so that's kind of what it's been like right from the beginning and I think the biggest biggest thing has been learning to put expectations in place at every stage Um, expectations for myself making sure that they're more realistic because I am really prone to saying right I'm going to do all of the things and that's that's just even if you're a, a healthy person that's not possible but also, really importantly, expectations of others. If you are communicating those things really clearly from the outset, it's much easier to build up gradually. And there's not as much accidental pushing further than you should. So you can do the same process of building a business. It just might be at a slightly slower pace, or you might have to work smarter and find workarounds, which other people maybe wouldn't have had to have done. Can you give some specific examples of that? So for me, I think the very first thing I did when I started Bear Hugs was I got in touch with the Prince's Trust and I signed up for their Exploring Enterprise course where they help you write a business plan. And the expectation of that course was that you attend for four days and at the end of those four days, you can then be matched with a mentor and maybe get some funding. For me, attending four days on the trot of a course in person was not doable and I actually tried the first day without saying I don't think I can do this whole thing and then I got to the end of it and I was like this isn't going to work so then had a conversation with the people that were running the course explained and then was able to change it so that they run that course once a month the next time that course ran I then did a bit of the next day and then when it ran again a bit more but it was having the changing that expectation on myself that I must do those four days all in one go, um, but also speaking to the other people involved and saying this would be what would be more realistic for me. That kind of thing right at the beginning. But even now, like I have 18 employees and I 
am a people pleaser by nature. So I want to be available and responsive all of the time, but that's not doable. So it's just letting people know I will get back to you when I can, but I can't do it right now. And just having those expectations in place. And how did you navigate that when you have a literal product to send out? Because people have expectations, they place orders, they might be for special occasions. How did you kind of take those lessons that you learned early on and applied them to having a literal product? So for me, it was about in the copy, on the wherever those products were listed, putting realistic timescales for dispatch. So it might be that it actually, rather than a two-day dispatch, it was a five-day dispatch. And for me as well, it was asking for help where I needed it. So say it was getting close to that five-day dispatch period, and I was thinking, I'm not going to be able to do that, asking for help from people around me. So uh, Jared, my husband, he's been involved right from the beginning, helping with those things. Um, And I find it quite difficult to ask for help, but it's been essential. The first thing is just setting the expectations with a bit of a buffer in, and that might be extending the lead time on it. And aside from the expectations and trying not to people please and being kind to yourself and flexibly creative with how you're working. Your business grew from it just being a one-man band on Etsy into a company with 18 people, which is amazing. Running a business is so much more than just having a product, right? There's so many different aspects to it. How did you, especially at the beginning, before you had the support of a team, go about sourcing, shipping, marketing, financing, all of those things, how did you kind of start thinking about all of those things and working out how to allocate your time and your, most importantly, I suppose, your energy? The course that I did with the Prince's Trust was actually incredibly helpful because it gave a structure. So as part of it, you come away with this workbook and it's, you write the business plan as part of it. And it's like, step one, do your product, your market research. What are people doing out there? Look at that and then start the sourcing and so really what it kind of helped me do was chunk it into those different things in a sequential order that made sense so I kind of just followed that blueprint through but just did it in chunks a bit at a time obviously they start to overlap and that is what I found exceptionally challenging for a long time but I think still the key for me is just chunking okay I'm going to break that down. I can't do all of those things at once. Let's do that first bit first. And then maybe we then have to move over to another area and we do the first section. But just keeping an eye on what those different chunks are and doing them in the most logical order that I can. One of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you today is that you have made Bear Hugs an inclusive employer. You have worked really hard to make sure that you are offering opportunities to other people living with chronic illnesses. I'd love to talk to you about how you started thinking about that and how you put that in place, because I think that's something that a lot of businesses can learn, because I think a lot of organizations don't know how to go about thinking a bit differently about employment and I'd love to see what we can learn from you that hopefully can um, help other people who are in a similar situation. Before I talk about it though I would like to say like I know that we don't have it all covered. There are always 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 things that we could be doing to improve what we're doing in terms of access and there'll be things that we're missing now that we could do in future. So the things that we're doing I'm really proud of but I don't think it's finite. I think that there's a lot more that we could do. So how I started thinking about it was from the beginning, I felt so frustrated that 
at that time, like you said, it is easier now, slightly easier to find opportunities. There's still not enough. But at the time, I found it so frustrating that I couldn't see anything out there that felt like a good fit for me to be able to do. And I knew that I wanted there to be more opportunity. So right from the outset, I had this vague notion that I wanted, if I'm building something, I want it to have opportunities as part of it going forward. When I started, I had absolutely no clue how to do that. So it's been a very gradual process of learn, reflect, implement and change as we go. Um, But I, I had that inkling. Now, when it first came to needing support within Bear Hugs and looking to employ people, the difficulty I had was that the biggest thing that I needed help with was the physical side of packing gift boxes. And I needed it to be within very set time periods so that we could be meeting those expectations that we have from our customers around delivery, etc. And what I wanted was to advertise a job that was accessible and could be a good fit, but I didn't know how to do that. So I actually paused on that. Um, and then the first job that I advertised that I knew had had the potential for a structure that I could make really accessible was at the time it was called our hug donations assistant and that could be worked remotely it could be worked flexibly uh, and I could see how that structure could work for it so Georgina joined Bear Hugs as our first employee in that role and she was able to design the boxes that we would send to our donation recipients from home at her own pace And basically, since we advertised that role for Georgina, ever since then, we've been trying to learn what's happened from those roles actually existing and then tweak them, change them, improve them before we offer the next set. So we're now at the point where over 50% of the team works remotely and flexibly on a flexible contract with Bear Hugs. And the ways that we try to make those roles accessible really vary. Um, A lot of it comes down to the structure of it. We're not a charity. Roles for people with disability, it's not charity for people to have jobs. It's about them being meaningful jobs with purpose that have the same expectations and in some place professional boundaries that roles in other organisations would have, but they just have a bit more flexibility built in. So the roles that we have now, they might be some really flexible shift-based roles. So for example, our customer service team, um, we have three or four shifts in a day, and they're one hour shifts. So it's just one hour of work, but they can be completed within a wider window. So for example, we have a morning shift, which can be completed anytime between 5am and 9am. We have a midday shift that can be completed between 11 and half two, and then an afternoon shift, which again has a window. And that works for some people because they can sign up for the hours that work for them, or they can drop those shifts and swap them with other people if they don't. So the structure there is those flexible shifts, but also having the team that has flexibility within it so that if one person isn't able to do it, someone else can pick it up. And there's no expectation if you are not feeling up to it on that day that you do it, it's fine. We've got buffers to build that in. So that's one way. Another way is our digital marketing. At the moment, we've taken a task-based approach. So this is actually an area that we're still working on. I don't think we've got it nailed yet. I think that there's still ways we can improve it, but we have a list of tasks that need to be completed and people who are in the task-based model can sign up for those tasks, complete them at their own pace, 
there will be a set deadline for that task, but there's opportunity for communication around it um, if you're not able to work to them. But what we ask is that everybody tries to build in some buffer time before they pick up those tasks and then they get paid for the hours that they've worked on those at the end. Um, and then we also have other roles which are slightly more flexible. So like Georgina's role, who she's now Hug Nominations Manager at Bear Hugs, which is so cool. I love that. Um, but she just works dependent on what work needs to be done. She'll just submit to me the number of hours she's worked at the end of the month and we pay for that. So that's the kind of structure. But there's also a lot of other stuff that's involved, which I think is actually really simple, um, but makes a big difference. So what's really, really, really important to me is that we have a culture where it's safe and normalized to talk about access needs. I think the biggest thing I find when people come to work at Bear Hugs is confidence issues. When you have been in a world where you're made to feel inconvenient for having access needs. You have maybe not been able to maintain your job previously because of access needs. It can really knock you. Um, and then it can make you nervous to talk about the needs that you have, which are totally reasonable and not a big deal. And it's very easy to offer the support to make sure that those needs are met. But I think the biggest thing is making sure it feels safe to have those conversations. How do you go about doing that? We have meetings within the team that people always have the opportunity with their line manager, be that me or one of our other managers, for what we call catch-up cuppers. They are check-ins, basically, with your manager to see how things are going. And we have a structure for those catch-ups when we chat. So it'll be what's going well, what could be going better, anything we can support you with. But there's always, 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 always on the agenda for that meeting no matter what that person's access needs, whether they've declared any or not, there's always the question of, is there anything Bear Hugs could be doing to support you at the moment in terms of access? It's always there. It's just the norm. We understand things change. It might have been that you didn't need something before. You might need something now. It's just there. And having that has really helped people have the space to talk about it. Another way is that I like to set the tone right from the beginning. So when somebody applies for a job, at Bear Hugs, as part of the application process, we make sure that we try to give lots of space for opportunity to talk about access needs if people would like to. And when we offer interviews, we try to, at the beginning of that interview, offer things that we've done in the past that might have helped other people access that interview. And before the call, offer opportunities to ask us if there's anything in advance that they'd like to know. And so kind of set that tone right from the very beginning. And then it's just something that I, I hope that all of our team members feel it's an okay thing to talk about and therefore it's easier to then support. I was going to ask you as you were talking, I was going to ask you about how people can know what to ask for, because I think that's one of the, the big things, especially if you're kind of isolated from work and you haven't been given the opportunity to think about access adjustments or anything like that it's very hard for people to even know what kind of support is out there and what kind of things could help them because if they've had no experience of that they just don't know so aside from kind of examples beforehand which I think is a great idea is there anything else that you do to help people start thinking about what could help them and how you offer that kind of suggestion and support to people there's a million different things that this could be so I'll hone in on some examples 
but that's not to say that it's like that's the extent of it. So uh, something that we offer at the beginning of every call that we have is if you'd like the opportunity to take a break at any point, we can choose a set time for it or uh, we can have a signal that we agree at the beginning of the meeting uh, that just means I can take a break. That's just sort of standard practice as part of every call within Bear Hugs. And I found that not everybody felt comfortable asking for those things. But when you offer it up, people are like, ah, okay, yeah, I'll take that. That sounds like it could be useful. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing is that when people join the team, we send out um, a DSE, which is basically looking at your working setup. So it might be the position of your laptop, uh, how your arms are positioned. When you look at the standardized DSE assessment, it is very much based on the fact that you're going to be sat at a desk, you're going to have your feet on the floor, and you're going to be sat in an office chair. Now, for a lot of people, that's not the most accessible way to work. For some people, it's in bed. It might be that they need their laptop raised on a tray, but that's not standard protocol to offer that. So when we send out the the DSE assessment, we send it also with the caveat and um, suggestions of what we've done in the past of different setups that you could consider. So that might be a tray on your bed. And have you found that the 50% of your staff who aren't chronically ill have also benefited from these things that you've put in place? 100%. Yeah, I think absolutely. Who doesn't need a rest sometimes? Like, who doesn't think clearer after they've had a breather to come back, take some time away, and then start again? I think that the culture in the team is so beautiful because of that mix that we have Um, people are incredibly empathetic and supportive of one another and I think that the open conversations we have around access allow people to be open about other things there's no expectation that people are but the vulnerability that maybe people don't have in other organizations really sort of builds that trust among team members and so I think Yeah, that's just a small way I can see the knock-on effect of it. One of the things that you talked about earlier was how flexibility has been implemented throughout the business. How was it kind of setting this up over the years? Were there there challenges with that? What happens if a bunch of people are unwell at the same time and you might not have somebody to do a role that needs to be done, but obviously you want to be able to support your team. How do you go about navigating some of those challenges? I have not done that right at every point. Uh, I have learnt a lot along the way, but what used to happen is that I'd buffer it all of the time, which didn't work for my health. So that's what happened initially. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Well, of course, like it was never a question for me that anybody should work if they're not feeling up to working. That was, that's a no-brainer. Don't do that. But you didn't do that for yourself? Absolutely not. I was shocking. And I still am occasionally... But the biggest thing for me now is having the people around me to pull me up when I am doing that and using the support network around me. So some of that's official, some of that is unofficial. So that might be having Sean and Georgina here at Bear Hugs to like say, have you got any capacity? What what wiggle room have you got? 
within your roles to take this on. And a lot of the team within Bear Hugs actually know about multiple areas of Bear Hugs. They don't just know their role. And that gives us that flexibility of if we're dropping in one area, we've got support elsewhere that we can use. So that is a big thing, but also using the unofficial around me as well. So that is, well, Jared is now actually an employee of Bear Hugs, but my, my husband, Jared, using him, using's not the word, <laughs> asking very nicely for help if I need it and not trying to take it all on myself. What are some of the other challenges that you came across over the years? One of the big ones is resources. What it comes down to too often is money. I would really love to do all of the things that I could see would be really beneficial for the team, really beneficial for Bear Hugs. Sometimes that might be down to like, I worry that sometimes if people apply for a job at Bear Hugs, it's on the assumption that they have access to a laptop, for example. Bear Hugs at the moment doesn't have the budget to buy a laptop for every employee. We're a small business. But I know that that could be a deterrent for some people. And I don't have the funds for it right now. Longer term, that's my aim to make sure that as part and parcel, it's there. Uh, But that's something I could see, but couldn't do anything about. And it came down to money. Um, A big one is that something that we've done a little bit over the last year is alongside the work is having the opportunity for accessible social things to go alongside it. And I think it's really important for team morale to have those opportunities. And I've got so many ideas for them. We would love to do some like crafting socials that could be done in chunks for people who maybe weren't able to attend the whole thing. I'd like to have book groups for people who were able to engage with that, but lots of variety within those so that no matter what people's circumstances are, there might be something that they can engage with. And I think that that side of it is really, really, really important. And we know that people who have got long-term health conditions often feel isolated and I would love to be doing more within what we're doing to build on that. In terms of, obviously, we're an organisation with employees, but we also offer a service. I want to make sure that the service that we're offering is as accessible and as inclusive as it possibly can be. And one of the big things I'd love to work on is our website. How can we improve the access of our website Um, So that's a big one. That's on my radar at the moment as a big project that I'd like to work on when we can. Okay, tell me if I'm making this up. You do advise other companies or am I imagining this? So we would love to do more of it. We'd love to, we're hoping by the end of, hoping as soon as we can to have a report which talks about what we do in terms of the models of employment. So that's the um, shift-based model, the task-based, and the the really boring stuff, really, the policies and the contracts that we offer to try and make the roles as accessible and as inclusive as possible and make sure that people have the same rights and opportunities regardless of what type of contract that they have to be on. So we want to pull together all of that with some case studies from within the team and start sharing those more broadly. If anybody reaches out to us, we are always happy to chat about those things. So if anybody listening to this would like to chat about it, we would love the opportunity to tell people about it um, and also be challenged on it. Like if people like hear us say something like, oh, but what about this? How does this work? 
we're all for that it's really important so we'd like to do more of it but we're doing little bits here and there at the moment when people ask us I'm curious how the task-based model and some of the more flexible options that you have work in terms of payment for people because I think one of the things that is the most challenging is and I guess it's the difference between being a freelancer or being employed is that when you're employed and you're ill you take sick leave you're still paid for at least a chunk of that sick leave how does that work in terms of payment for people if their hours have to fluctuate and they need to kind of have a stable income how, how do you navigate that it's still really hard we've not got it totally nailed I've got kind of an incremental plan to improve it as best I can so for those models at the moment they are still zero hour contracts because the contracts options that exist are so limited for flexibility in that way so what happens is that if you are an employee on either of those models every month you can have a set amount of standing pay which is just your being an employee pay so that is to check your emails to keep up we use slack for communicating with each other is to keep on top of that so if you're working you get that pay as standard If you're on one of the shift-based models, you get paid for the shifts that you work. Um, And then what's kind of standard practice on a zero hours contract is rather than you have consistent pay every month, you receive a holiday allowance as part of that that pay. So if you say you work for 10 hours, you'll receive, I think it's the standard is maybe a 12% on top for holiday pay. And the idea is that you accrue that for every hour that you work. And it's not ideal at all, but you would then have received extra pay, which accounts for the times when you're not working. Now, at Bear Hugs, I don't think the standard is enough on that, and it doesn't cover sick pay. So what we have done is we've increased the amount that people recruit for every hour that they work. So at Bear Hugs, at the moment, for every hour that you work, you also receive an additional 16% on top of that, which is hopefully a small something to account for if you then are not able to work, you've received extra on the times when you have worked. It's not ideal, but it's something. And what I would like to do if people are continuing to use those zero-hour contracts is to just increase that amount so that it's totally in line with what we can offer if someone's on a fixed-term contract. So you're receiving the exact percentage. So already it's standard that the holiday pay percentage you receive on top of your hours is exactly the same as if you were on a fixed contract with Bear Hugs. What I'd like is we can't... we're doing it step by step because I'd like the sick pay percentage that you receive for every hour that you work to be the same um, in a fixed term contract. What have been the biggest lessons that you've learned over these last seven years and what are the biggest messages that you'd like to get out to employers, to businesses and the types of things that you had, had wished existed when you were looking for work? It's the smallest changes that make the biggest difference. Just asking at the beginning of a call if someone would like to take a break costs nothing, is not a big deal. But the feedback that I have from employees on things like that is that it makes all of the difference about how they feel that they can engage with that meeting. It means that they're more part of it right from the beginning because they're like, it's okay, I'm going to have a break if I need one. It's the smallest changes that can make the difference. It can be just like you might have a shift based model already, but if you just add a little bit more flexibility onto those shifts, it probably doesn't impact on business, it probably still works. But it means that 
you're getting more out of the people and they are getting so much more out of it themselves. They're feeling the reward of it because it works better for them. So it's the small changes that make the biggest difference. And I think it's not costly. It doesn't have to be huge and shiny. It's the small things that make the difference. A big thank you to Faye for joining me on the podcast. It's amazing to hear about all the hard work she's doing to make her business as accessible and inclusive as it can be. I really hope other companies take note. Funnily enough, when we pressed stop on the recording of the episode, I actually said, oh, I really want to come and work for you now. I'll of course leave a link to Bear Hugs in the episode notes if you want to check out the website. If you find this podcast helpful and want to support my work, please consider subscribing to my restroom newsletter. It's an in-depth look at how to live and live well with chronic illness. Find out more and become a free or premium subscriber at natashalipman.substack.com. Premium memberships are £5 a month or £50 a year and give you access to exclusive content. Please rate, leave a review and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. And that's all from me. Thanks so much for joining me in the restroom. Ta-ta for now.